This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Newman, a host of this channel. Today I'm speaking with Gemma Klops and Santa Maria about her new book, In the Vortex of Violence, Lynching, Extralegal Justice, and the State in Post-Revolutionary Mexico, published by the University of California Press. Dr. Klops Santa Maria is Assistant Professor of Latin American History at Loyola University, Chicago. Gemma, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, thank you, Rachel, for having me and for all of those that are listening to us. Thank you. Great. So let's begin by learning a little bit more about your path to this book. Um, how did you get interested in writing about extralegal violence and justice in Mexico? Um, so I became interested in the subject due to the persistence of this phenomenon up to this day. Um, it was actually a, a very recent, a relatively recent case, what got me interested into the subject of lynching and vigilante justice in general. Um, this was a case um, that took place in Mexico City um, around 2004 in, in the neighborhood called Tlahuac in Mexico City. Uh, it was a lynching perpetrator against three police officers that were in plain clothes outside of a school taking some pictures. And there was this rumor that some mothers began, mothers of, um, of some school uh, students that were, um, that were there, and they began to say that these police officers were trying to kidnap children or that they were part of this um, organization that was kidnapping children. So people, after this rumor began, they surrounded the policemen and they began to beat them and, and then set fire on them. Two of them died as a result of the incident. So this, this case, um, this case known as, as, the, as the Tlahuac lynching no, against these police officers, was uh, transmitted live by Televisa, the largest uh, broadcast, broadcast network in Mexico, and, and this really got me thinking into this topic. Um, I mean, meaning the, the question was, like, why, why would people use this visible, brutal, collective form of violence to express their anger? Um, and why people that, you know, like usually go about their things in a very regular way? I mean, this, this lynching including, included as many others that I have studied, uh, mothers, um, uh, family members, uh, even children as witnesses, how can they engage in these acts of brutality? So this case, um, again, it called my attention. And, and so you could say that my project began as a, you know, as a history of the present. No? I mean, trying to understand how come uh, Mexico, in Mexico City, could happen a phenomenon such as this. And, and you know, Mexico City uh, is not the exception. I mean, or, or rather Mexico is one of the of various several countries in Latin America where this phenomenon has increased over the last 20 to 30 years, according to several studies. So Latin America, you know, like a region that otherwise is considered fully functional democracies, no? I mean, that are well integrated into the global economy, 
it seems it seems paradoxical, no? I mean, why why do these acts of brutality continue to happen today? So the project began really as a question to understand the paradoxes of Latin America today. Um, and then what I encounter is that most most studies written on lynching had been prepared by sociologists, anthropologists, political scientists working on Bolivia, Guatemala, Mexico. Um, there are some studies on, on Peru, Venezuela, Brazil, like some of the most prevalent cases uh, studied in Latin America. But there, there wasn't much, or actually, up to my, I mean, to, to my knowledge, actually, there is very few studies, just a couple of studies, uh, as a matter of fact, on Mexico and Peru, that try to understand lynching prior to 1980 or, or 1990s decades. So there is literally um, no history of the phenomenon. And, and as a result of this, many scholars their arguments were that this was a novel phenomenon, uh, that lynching was a result of the incomplete, um, faulty democratization processes that had taken place in Latin America beginning in the 1980s, that it was part of this kind of like neoliberal reforms that had left a lot of people disenfranchised and unprotected, um, that this was kind of like a neoliberal form of justice where you know, people that didn't have access to the regular channels provided by the state sought to protect themselves via private mechanisms of justice. So there was a lot of, um, you know, analysis that was that were grounded on the present with the assumption that this was really a new phenomenon. Um, so, you know, when I answer the question of how I came to this topic, I also need to say that this is the topic that got me into becoming a historian. I mean, I, I began my career as an internationalist. I studied international relations in Mexico City. Um, then I went and did a master's degree in, at the London School of Economics in gender studies, and then uh, began the PhD as a sociologist. Um, but when I began to study lynching, and again, when I found out that most scholars were, you know, making these arguments that this was a novel phenomenon, I thought, you know, like there, there is a history that needs to be told here. I mean, what is the history of this phenomenon? I mean, uh, I was, I was certainly, you know, curious. I mean, had the intellectual curiosity, but I was also doubtful that this was a new phenomenon. Um, and so I began to study. Um, I mean, to examine cases. I mean, to find cases in the past. I mean, there's, there's a very famous case that is not covered by the book, but I have written about in other articles uh, that took place in 1968 uh, against uh, individuals that were accused of being communist students in Puebla. And this happened again in 1968. So, so I, I, I had one incident that I knew happened before the 1980s. There was a series of cases also perpetrated against socialist teachers in the 1930s that some historians had talked about. Um, so that's how the project began. I mean, trying to trace the history of a phenomenon that has been, by and, by and large, uh, unexplored by scholars working on Latin American lynchings, uh, and also inspired by the rich historiography that exists about this phenomenon in the United States. I mean, in, in contrast to Latin America, uh, the historiography on lynching in the United States is quite rich. I mean, it's, it's, it's very... Uh, you know, nuance in its arguments, and, and I really benefited greatly from this historiography uh, in order to understand uh, from a critical viewpoint the the drivers, the main drivers and the main, um, 
you know, characteristics of this phenomenon. So, so, so again, this is uh, history of the present in a way, and, and an effort to to understand the history of a practice that certainly connects to current phenomena, but is not a new phenomenon in Latin America. So from there, could you sketch out some of the big ideas in your book? And I'd really like you to tell us how your research, um, in a way, debunks some myths or some sort of received ideas about lynching in Mexico. Yes, sure. Um, so... So there are like some uh, main arguments in the book. Uh, I mean, one of the first main arguments is the fact that lynching, contrary to what some scholars have claimed, uh, again, based on contemporary cases for the most part, lynching is not an expression of a state absence or, or the failure of the state. Um, again, many scholars have said that, you know, like when lynchings happen, it's because the police is not there, uh, it's because there is not a, a presence of the authorities, and therefore people uh, use lynching as a way to um, to defend themselves against certain crimes. I mean, uh, given that there is no authority there, then people take justice into their own hands. What I found um, is that the state is not absent. I mean, the state is present. And what we need to, I mean, and, it, and it is present in the form of majors, local judges, police officers, and even military in some cases. Um, so the important thing here is not to say that the state is not present, but what kind of a state was there in the communities that I'm studying? Uh, and what I find is that it's a state which is perceived as corrupt, is perceived as uh, invasive, um, as a state that is unwelcome, um, be it because, I mean, the study covers, I mean, begins in the 1930 and finishes in, in 1960. I mean, this is a period that is fundamental to understand the, the project of state formation and modernization that the, that the PRI, uh, the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, uh, began. Uh, and so it really is a very formative period for the rest of the 20th century. So, so many of the, so the, the presence of the state authorities was, again, perceived as invasive, was perceived as these modernizing projects that the state was promoting at the time, which included uh, sanitation campaigns, uh, including included also uh, efforts to recruit military, uh, but also um, uh, efforts to like literacy campaigns, like teachers being sent out in order to uh, teach people how to how to read, how to write. All these modernization projects were perceived uh, by local communities as invasive. I mean, as an unwelcome encroachment on behalf of central authorities. So. Again, it was a state that was not absent, but a state that was perceived as intrusive, unwelcome, uh, corrupt, and in many cases, a state that was perceived as being abusive of its force. So, so one important aspect that I study is that, you know, lynching, despite the fact that most cases were perpetrated by citizens or by non-state actors, in other cases, there were police officers majors in particular, involved in the organization of lynching, as well as in cases that resemble lynching, uh, although do not qualify as lynching as such. And I'm going to explain a little bit about that uh, in a minute about the definition of lynching that I use. 
Um, but they were participating in extrajudicial killings. They were participating in the in the torture uh, and in beating people on the streets. I mean, on these very like visible forms of abuse. So, so again, state authorities were perceived as this abusive uh, presence. Therefore, they didn't have legitimacy in the eyes of people. No, I mean, so so an important source of legitimation or an important uh, way to understand. How is it that people came to see lynching as a legitimate form of justice is to see how they perceive the state. No, I mean, and again, it was not a state that was necessarily absent, but it was a state that was present in a way that was perceived as invasive, corrupt and abusive of force. So that's one of the main, main ideas no? that um, that the state was there, but it was a presence that was not welcome. Now, the second big idea in the book is that, uh, again, contrary to what some scholars have claimed, lynching simply doesn't fit easily into categorizations of violence as a top-down or as a bottom-up phenomenon. Um, several scholars, I mean, most of them sociologists, anthropologists, have characterized lynching as a weapon of the weak, meaning lynching is seen as a, as a, as a tool, as an instrument, perpetrated by people that are uh, at the margins of society, that have been excluded from the social contract, that are economically marginalized, and that use uh, lynching in a way to assert their agency vis-a-vis perceived threats, crime, uh, things that are uh, threatening their material or their physical integrity. Whereas I agree that many of lynch, many lynchings, including in the period that I study and analyze, they do tend to happen in communities that are marginalized. This doesn't mean that lynching are to be understood as an expression of a weapons of the weak. Why? Because lynchings are actually perpetrated against people that are at the margins of society. So lynching is more, more fitly, and this is my definition uh, of lynching, can be described or defined as a form of social control. A form of social control that is used against people that are at the margins of society, in my study, against social, uh, uh, socialists, witches, communists, criminals or people that are accused of being criminals. Um, in other words, people that have, for one reason or another, uh, existed in the margins of society and are perceived as dangerous and as threatening the core values of these communities. Communities that, for the most part, are imagine themselves uh, as being law-abiding, no? as not being uh, involved in any crime, that uh, have this idea of themselves also as, 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 as marking the boundaries between what is allowed and what is not allowed, uh, communities that are for the most part Catholics. No? So, so the people that were victimized by lynching in post-revolutionary Mexico include all of these, you know, like, people that I have seen as outcasts, no? I mean, again, witches, socialists, uh, Protestants, no? in the 1940s, 1950s. So instead of being a weapon of the weak, I mean, what I find and, and what informs my definition of lynching is that lynching is actually a form of social control, a form of social control that, again, doesn't fit easily into top-down or bottom-up characterizations of violence because it can be used against people that is at the margins and also because 
Sometimes it was used against people that were in positions of authority, such as majors or local power brokers like these caciques. Uh, but the directionality of violence is not is not predetermined. No, I mean we need to see case by case, and so the the directionality of violence in lynching is not easily defined. Um, so let me just very quickly refer to my definition of lynching because this is <laughs> oftentimes a, a question that I that I that I hear and, and and people often tell me like oh like you should have begun by telling us what is your definition of lynching. Um, so let me just say quickly. Um, so I define lynching as a as a public, visible, collective, extra legal form of violence perpetrated by individuals or by communities against people that are perceived as threatening to the material and physical integrity or to the values that are upheld by a certain community. Um, so this definition means that, uh, I mean, this definition excludes certain acts of, uh, or certain acts of violence that happen in the private sphere, I mean, that are not uh, perpetrated collectively, uh, that are perpetrated behind doors, such as certain forms of vigilante justice that do not have this spectacular character. Um, it excludes also forms of violence that are not perpetrated in the name of justice or that are not perpetrated as a form of social control, um, meaning you could have perhaps like a, a form of collective violence, but that is motivated by a, economic reasons. I mean, trying to rob someone, uh, that is not a lynching. No, I mean, in order for it to be a lynching, there needs to be an explicit uh, purpose of punishing a behavior or a social transgression. I mean, that needs to be at the center of what motivates a lynching. Um, another thing that this definition has is that it doesn't exclude cases that are perpetrated by state actors. I mean, in my understanding of lynching, lynching can be perpetrated by state actors. I mean, and, and, and this is, again, based on the historical evidence that I collected. And this is something that doesn't appear much in the literature on contemporary uh, lynchings in Latin America, in many ways because lynchings today are not perpetrated by, uh, or not mainly perpetrated by police officers and majors. Um, but I think this flexibility of the term is important in order to understand kind of like the porous borders between, or the porosity between state and non-state forms of violence. Um, it also connects more or more directly to the definition of lynching in the United States. So for those, um, you know, potential readers or people that are listening to us that are more familiarized with the history of lynching in the United States, this shouldn't come as a surprise. No? I mean, in the United States, the Texas Rangers, I mean, other police officers, majors, participated in the organization of lynching. Uh, and so this also happened in post-revolutionary Mexico. So I would say like those are the those are the two main ideas. I mean, how the state was not absent, but present in a very peculiar way um, that was perceived as undesirable. The second is that it's not a top-down or bottom-up form of violence, but that really escapes these easy characterizations. And then the last one I would add, uh, Rachel, I don't want to expand too much here, um, but the, the third one I would add is that Lynchings, for the most part, have been studied in Latin America as a reaction to increasing levels of crime. Um, and again, like this, this, 
this observation holds for the present. But if we look back at the history of lynching in Latin America, and in the case of Mexico that I'm studying, you see a wide array of drivers uh, or causes behind the organization of lynching that go beyond the question of crime or perceptions of crime, which is what very much uh, is at the center of, of, of other um, scholars interpretation. And so what I find is that it's not just about crime uh, or perceptions of crime, although I do talk about that in the book, but it's also about how the state was perceived. So it has to do with issues of state formation, but it also has to do with religious beliefs, with Catholics' understanding of what constituted transgressions in their view. It has to do with witchcraft, no? I mean, lynchings against witches. It has to do with political ideologies. So um, so I think the history of lynching in post-revolutionary Mexico allows us to see the, the multiple drivers of lynching beyond the question of crime. Thank you for sketching out, uh, really mapping for us what is such a complex topic. Um, so maybe we could, you know, try to examine some of the different um, aspects that you've mentioned in the in the upcoming questions. So moving to your first chapter, could you set the scene for us about some of the ways that the post-revolutionary state tried to change communities and everyday life? And explain to us a little bit more about what the connection is between modernization campaigns of various kinds and lynching, because I think that connection maybe isn't obvious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, perfect. So this is this is something that I discuss in chapter one, uh, which deals with the relationship between a st- a state formation and lynching. And once again, like in the the core argument of this chapter is that um, that lynching was a result of uh, lynching wasn't an expression of a state absence, but was uh, an expression actually of communities and how they reacted to the presence of the state. So what I argue is that uh, lynching, like in certain communities, like the processes of modernization that were promoted by the post-revolutionary state, especially under Cárdenas, I mean, but it continues with Avila Camacho, um, these processes of, of modernization included sanitation campaigns, literacy campaigns. So they were efforts to bring "Quote unquote modernity to these communities, also to building building roads, bridges, uh, uh, bringing like vaccines that 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 these communities hadn't had access to. So, so it was really an effort on behalf of the state to centralize power, uh, to bring these communities into the center, um, to to modernize them economically speaking, but also to promote this idea of. Uh, rational, secular citizen, no? I mean, a rational, secular, and sober citizen. That, that was the ideal, uh, the ideal of these modernization projects. And this ideal of citizen was, of course, uh, posed vis-a-vis the, the Catholic, irrational, uh, drunk uh, citizen that uh, post-revolutionary leaders thought that existed in many of these communities. So, so this was uh, central for the, for the modernization projects. Um, so the the reason why you know like this these were perceived as invasive. Uh, sorry, the other uh, let me just briefly say the the other part of this modernization project was the agrarian reform. No, I mean the agrarian reform that was uh, the distribution of land envisioned particularly by Lazaro Cárdenas, a very pushed very aggressively by Lazaro Cárdenas in in many of these rural communities, and uh, that although it was welcomed by some people that you know were really 
fought during the revolution or were very uh, were believing in these revolutionary promises and were expecting the revolution the revolution to bring this agrarian reform. Other people saw this as a as, again, as an unwelcome invasion on behalf of the central state that was meddling with affairs that were conceived as as local. I mean, as part of the of the community or communitarian order that shouldn't be interrupted or um, or disrupted by the central state. So the so the question is, I mean, I I describe in the chapter several instances in which communities in facing these quote unquote modernizing forces. No, I mean in the in the in the figure of the socialist teacher or the federal teacher that came to rural communities for the first time and tried to promote literacy campaigns, but also anti anti-religious campaigns, no? I mean, as part of these defanatization efforts uh, on behalf of the post-revolutionary state. In the face of this presence, um, communities resorted to lynching as a way to resist the presence of the state. No? I mean, so, so these, I, I develop a typology of lynchings in this, in this chapter that refers to lynching as, as resistance, no? I mean, as resisting these modernizing projects, lynching as as trying to correct the the type of justice that uh, that the state tries to promote, I mean, meaning when the when certain police officers wanted to punish someone that in the eyes of the communities was not uh, trans, a, tra- a transgressor or was was not doing anything wrong, so people were trying to correct that type of justice by the state, um, but also lynchings as a as mirroring the type of. Uh, unlawful and abusive behavior on behalf of police authorities. So so these three typologies of lynching allow me to trace the relationship between a state and, and, and citizens at the local level. I mean, see how they interacted and how lynching really offers a very interesting window to understand state-society relations. Um, I mean, one of the things I, I want to say in particular about modernization is that in many, um, in, in some of the literature and even in some of the media accounts that you find today about lynching, lynching tends to be understood as a as an as a thing from the past, as something that is like you know like barbaric that has to do even with like indigenous traditions, which is not the case. No, I mean like my study, as as others have found, that there is no correlation between indigenous forms of justice and lynching. I mean lynching happens at mo- as much in indigenous as it happens in mestizo communities. Um, so there is this idea that somehow lynching is anti-modern, or or that is. Uh, you know, that it happens in these isolated communities. And what I find is that that is not the case. Lynching happens precisely in communities that were being modernized by the state. And so lynching is not an expression of some isolated pre-modern communities backward that were, that were ignorant of what was happening in the world. But lynching is precisely a result of modernization. No? I mean, a way in which these communities resisted this encroachment of the state uh, and of this you know, several authority figures uh, in the form of like, uh, again, teachers that came and that tried to um, 
convert people to, to being like secular citizens, no, by uh, by explaining them how it was like rational to uh, not believe in God, no, I mean sometimes being very iconoclast or very offensive of people's religion, uh, or how again people resisted the sanitation projects that they believe were detrimental for their. Uh, for their economies of subsistence, no. For instance, uh, the food and mouth uh, disease or the anti-food and mouth disease campaign uh, promoted by the government in, in the 1940s encountered a lot of resistance on behalf of peasants that didn't want their cattle to be killed, which is what this campaign did in many cases in order to fight this virus. No? I mean, they, they killed the cattle and so the peasants resisted via lynching. So, so this is something that I discussed uh, the relationship between modernization and lynching, Rachel. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So in your second chapter, um, you know, in addition to looking at the state and society, we also start to look at kind of another institutional and spiritual force that's a big part of the story. Um, religion is also necessary um, to look at to understand um, extrajudicial killings. So could you explain how spiritual beliefs and then also the church institution um, sort of contributed to making lynching seem legitimate or necessary in some communities, the connection there. Right. Yeah. So, so the, so again, this is, this is a very, um, this is an aspect that has, hasn't been explored by most uh, literature on lynching in Latin America, the role of religion. And I claim that actually religion was, and specifically Catholic religion was uh, a central source uh, that allow lynching to be perceived as a legitimate form of justice by several communities that identify with Catholicism or with Catholic beliefs and practices. So what I see here is that I, I mean, my argument here is that, you know, the relationship between religion and violence uh, of religion and lynching is not straightforward. No, I mean, it's not linear. It's not a, uh, it's not simply that it's not simply to say as many post-revolutionary leaders were actually claiming that Catholics were fanatical and that they were irrational and and, and barbaric and that that therefore they were somehow um, more or, or even naturally inclined to commit these atrocities or these collective forms of violence uh, mobilized by some some sort of religious irrational frenzy. Uh, what I argue is that in order to understand the way in which religion impacted lynching, we need to look at the at several factors. We need to understand that religion was not only about, um, you know, like the spiritual dimensions uh, of religion and faith, but it was also about very political and material matters. So we need to understand how at the local level, for instance, parish priests play uh, a very central role in the ways in which the status, the status quo in the community was maintained. So priests uh, or like, like Catholic priests uh, at the local level were connected both to political and economic elites that opposed the agrarian reform. Um, they were also 
seen as a as a very strong traditional form of authority that therefore didn't welcome um, the the state and I mean and this central secular authorities meddling into the ways in which things were managed at the local level by this priest in connection to mayors. So it is my my argument that we need to look at the anti-socialist, anti um anti-central or like very kind of like defensive politics that was promoted by Catholics at the local level, that we need to understand how religion triggered lynching. I mean, that it was this kind of like political material dimensions of religion, together, of course, also with its spiritual and and more symbolic dimensions, what matter uh, in, in in order to understand the the connection between Catholicism and lynching. So I analyze in these chapters, in this chapter, lynchings against socialist teachers. No? I mean, kind of like goes back or connects back to the first chapter two on state formation uh, and see how some of these teachers were uh, iconoclast. I mean, they were like born in images of saints and they were, uh, you know, like um, using using churches as stables or like uh, or, or organizing revolutionary uh, Sundays in, in days that were, you know, like perceived as sacred for Catholics. And this offended many Catholics and therefore Catholics reacted to this, no? I mean, reacted to these provocations by using lynching. Um, I also demonstrate how the the fact that many socialist teachers promoted the agrarian reform and that the agrarian reform went against the interest of some of the local elites that were connected to this parish priest also contributed to the to the organization of lynching. Um, uh, and then I also analyzed the very important and, and still very unexplored uh, issue of Catholics of violence uh, between Catholics and Protestants, but mostly by Catholics against Protestants. No? I mean, and, and again, I explain how Protestantism was also, especially in the 1940s, uh, understood as this foreign uh, religion that came from outside, particularly from the United States, uh, was perceived as also being closer to the leftist, communist, revolutionary ideas that many Catholics, conservative Catholics rejected. So, so I explore all of these aspects as well. No, I mean, as part of a continuum of uh, of things that were driving a lynching in connection to religion. One last thing I would like to say about this is that when you study the post-revolutionary period through the lenses of lynching, what you're able to do is to see all this phenomenon from from the very local level, I mean, from this kind of like the 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 bottom up uh, and the kind of like dirty everyday politics that happens in the margins. And so what I found is that whereas at the macro level, in the 1940s, you see a shift in the relationship between the state and church. I mean, uh, going from a very... Um, antagonistic relation during the 1930s uh, to a very cordial and even collaborative relation during the 1940s. Even when you see that at the macro level, at the local level, you continue to see religious forms of violence. No? So, so it's interesting that, uh, again, lynching allows you to tell the story of the post-revolutionary period from, the, from, from a more local and, and everyday perspective that brings a lot of nuance to these macro narratives of state formation.
So thinking a little bit more about this question of scale, um, when we move to the third chapter, we see um, your study of, how, of the ways that lynchings were actually covered and narrated in the press, um, which could be more uh, sort of national in perspective or not. Um, you can talk some more about that. So I wondered if you could um, tell us a bit more about your sources. I thought this might be a good time uh, to touch on that topic and um, to tell us how you were able to identify the lynching cases that you use in the book. But I'd also like to hear a little bit, if it's just not one, <laughs> too many things to ask, um, how newspaper editors and reporters were shaping public ideas about extrajudicial violence from the way that they reported on it. Were they calling for, you know, um, the rule of law or more respect for the state or did the press have kind of a different stance? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great. Uh, thank you, Rachel. This is a very important question because as historians, like we always, you know, want to tell uh, our readers, our audience, like what are our sources? No, I mean, uh, and this this was a challenge. I mean, to study lynching is to study a, a practice that is um, illegal. No, I mean, that happens in the, um, in the, you know, like behind doors, no, or not behind doors because it's, it's very public. But what I mean is that it's an illegal practice and it's very difficult to trace. Uh, and the main reason for this is that lynching is not typified as a crime during the post-revolutionary period. Uh, and therefore, judicial sources were of very little help. No, I mean, the, the closest, um, you know, like legal um like type and to lynching is something called homicidio tumultuaria, uh, like tumultuous homicide or something like that would be translated to. Uh, but these weren't all, not all of those were lynching. I mean, the homicidio tumultuario uh, qualify for any type of uh, collective killing. But as I said before, not all collective killings are lynchings. I mean, it needs to be, in order to be a lynching, it needs to be organized for the purposes of punishing a crime. So, so because of this, because lynching is not typified as a crime, uh, and this again contrasts with experience in the United States where uh, lynching was typified and, um, and prosecuted as a crime, and, and that's a lot of the uh, explanation into why lynching decreased in the United States uh, by 1930, by the period that I where I actually start to, uh, or where my, where my study begins is where lynching in the United States declines. <laughs> um, so, so given that, uh, I did use some judicial sources, but very few uh, because of this, no? because lynching is not typified as a crime. So a few cases that I found uh, in, the, in the judicial archives, mostly in the Supreme Court, that had to do with lynchings against military or very high-level officials that 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 made it to the to the to the judicial process and actually to the to the to the Supreme Court. Um, then a very very central source for me were letters of complaint written to federal authorities by victims or families of victims of lynching from families of socialist teachers, families of Protestants, uh, or families of people that were accused of witchcraft. Uh, so many of these letters uh, tell a very candid uh, story and narrative about the victims of lynching and why, you know, like the politics involved in the cases and accusations against members of the community or even against uh, police officers, majors, and judges at the local level. No, I mean, people writing the writing President Cardenas telling him, uh, you know, like that this town is being ruled by this cacique that is abusing his power and that uses police officers to to perpetrate lynching. No, I mean, so so this was a very important source because it allows you to 
kind of look at the more granular uh, narrative of these cases. Another important uh, source are letters of reports, rather, written by, uh, by, by kind of like in, in investigators or, or also by security officials. Um, and these were basically intelligence reports. I mean, people uh, like uh, state agents that went to these towns to observe what was happening and then reported back to the, to the federal government. So these were very detailed uh, narratives of how the case unfolded, like interviewing several people. And, and what is interesting about these intelligence reports is that you know, like clearly, I mean, they had an agenda in the sense that in many ways they wanted to show that uh, in the case, for instance, of lynchings driven by Catholicism, they wanted to show that they were, that people were driven by ignorance and by fanatism. But at the same time, I mean, it does give you a very good sense uh, of, uh, again, like kind of like the different politics involved in these cases and the many voices that uh in, in the many voices that they collect, no? because they were interviewing uh, several people. And then finally, uh, the, what I would say was the main source, especially for this chapter on crime and perceptions of crime that you were referring to, was uh, the press. No? I mean, the press, uh, newspapers, um, especially crime news, no? I mean, what is known as Nota Roja. So, so this kind of like sensationalist news uh, that gave a very detailed and, you know, like morbid account of how the cases happened, no? I mean, of what happened to the victim. These were central for me. Uh, and yes, they were sensationalistic. I mean, they were, uh, they were trying to sell news. I mean, and, and lynching, like homicides are, are, are very, are a very attractive, uh, you know, like they're very attractive stories for the readers, no? I mean, they, with all their gruesome and, and sensational um, dimensions. Um, what I do, methodologically speaking, is that I, I acknowledge that sensationalist character of, 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 the, of the crime news or the Nota Roja, um, and instead of ignoring it, I, I make it part of my narrative. No? So I incorporate this, um, this storytelling and, and try to really kind of like do a, to unpack uh, these, these narratives. I mean, what were they saying, the, the crime news? I mean, what types of stories were they telling the readers? And in what ways their depiction of lynching contributed to a shared understanding of this practice as a form of justice? So, so I show how... Um, Whereas cases that were related, let's say, to Catholic religion that were driven by religion or those cases that were perpetrated against the quote-unquote modernizing forces of the state, whereas those cases uh, enter the press usually and, and were represented as cases of lynching as barbarity or lynching as a, as a sign of backward traditions, when it came to lynchings against criminals, by and large, the press represented these cases as a form of justice. So in other words, I mean, when the victims of lynchings were criminals, instead of, let's say, uh, you know, like socialist teachers or, or doctors in, in charge of vaccination campaigns or engineers or, uh, or even Protestants, when the victims of lynching were criminals, be them rapists, murderers, or petite robbers. I mean, people that were just stealing a, a, a typewriter no? or, a, or, a, or some clothing. In all of those cases, consistently the press, uh, including mainstream newspapers, not only the Nota Roja, um, 
coincided in this uh, representation of lynching as a form of justice. And what the news were doing is that they were they were promoting this discourse of the criminal as a as a divine uh, and 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 monstrous. Uh, as, as monstrous and divine individuals that deserve this form of justice, that they did not deserve the procedural forms of justice because, the press insinuated, if they face justice and if they face a judge, they are going to go free. So the argument was the justice that the state can provide is faulty and is insufficient, is ineffective, is corrupt. Therefore, these criminals we must get rid of them. I mean, the message was uh, because the justice system is corrupt and is inefficient, we must get rid of these criminals via lynching. No? So there was a, a legitimating discourse uh, articulated by the press, I mean, by the Nota Roja, but also by mainstream media that contributed to justify lynching. And sure, some of the media, uh, the newspaper said, Lynching is atrocious. Lynching is terrible. However, it's a necessary evil. I mean, that was the message, no? I mean, that it was a necessary evil and that it was even moral uh, in the face of, of conduct and, and crimes that were represented as being immoral and deviant, no? I mean, so, so in the face of this, uh, I mean, there were even lynchings that were justified against bad mothers or unnatural mothers, mothers that were accused of neglecting their children and that were uh, lynched uh, by neighbors. Even in those cases, what was abhorrent was the mothers that were not being good, natural mothers. The lynching was seen as a natural and even moral response to an uh, to an, uh, an atrocious crime. No, I mean, and, and, and finally, one last thing I would say about these lynchings against criminals is that in this chapter, you can see very clearly that sure, impunity is a driver of lynching, for sure. And I would say that's the case today as well. But it's not the only one. The point here is that people, perpetrators, believe that procedural forms of justice were not enough. They were not enough to punish criminals that were seen as unnatural. And therefore, what they wanted was a physical, swift, illegal form of punishment against them. No? So it's not only about the law failing, but it's also about the type of punishment that people wanted. So I think that's a really natural connection to talk a little bit about your last chapter where you examine lynchings of individuals accused of, I guess we could call them mythical offenses, including witchcraft. Um, and I would assume that these offenses are not um, not crimes according to you know the criminal code, but certainly are transgressions in the eyes of the people who carry out the lynching. Mm -hmm. So the question I have for you is, were you surprised to find these cases happening in the 1950s? And maybe you can talk a little bit more about this question of the connection between uh, lynching and modernity um, by talking about some of these cases. Right. Yeah, I mean, I... Um... So yes and no. I mean, I was surprised because uh, the again, like you, like we tend to think about like you know witchcraft and, and lynching itself as a as an expression of like more atavistic or uh, you know like background backward uh, traditions or beliefs. Um, but at the same time, when you look at the types of accusations that drive uh, lynchings against witches, you see that are 
that are perfectly in tune with concerns that have to do with modernization itself. No, I mean so. So again, in this chapter, I trace um, cases against witches, but also cases against against people accused of stealing um, body fat, especially body fat from children, uh, in order to allegedly propel modern machinery. Um, so there is a very, you know, like interesting case that I talk about uh, against this Norwegian aviator, uh, Kuhlman, uh, who was accused of being uh, a, a chupagrasa or like someone that was uh, that was feeding himself uh, by soaking children's body fat uh, and that allegedly he was also using this body fat in order to power his airplane no i mean and and what is behind this uh, even though it sounds like very fantastic uh, you know when i started to study the case i realized that well there was in fact like some a, like airplane flying every day in Puebla, no? I mean, that was um, like related to some trials that were being done by this famous pilot called Pablo Cidar. Uh, it was a moment in which indeed the, there were several modernization projects in Puebla as well as in other communities, no? I mean, again, with the state sending out uh, literacy, uh, people in charge of literacy campaigns, sanitation campaigns, building bridges, uh, building roads. No, I mean, it was like all this modernization related to capitalism. Um, so when you see this, you realize that, you know, like in many ways connected to to the logic of rumors, no, and 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 what. Um, James Scott and others have uh, have claimed in terms of like how rumors are not, you know, like they are not irrational. They have a logic, and and the logic here was that it was a way in which mythical beliefs are a way in which people made sense of otherwise uh, of, of, of 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 things that otherwise would seem out of their control. No, I mean, so so accusations of witchcraft and and also against with these mythical beliefs were very much a reaction to, again, this kind of like modernization projects and logics that were perceived as uh, out of control for many of these people. Uh, It also had to do, I mean, witchcraft accusations in particular uh, also had to do with this intra-community conflicts, no? I mean, and with cycles of vengeance and with uh, internal politics um, and witchcraft. I mean, I have to say this, like the gender dimension is quite interesting because even though most of the victims of lynching in post-revolutionary Mexico were male, when it came to accusations of witchcraft, most victims accused of witchcraft were women. And these women uh occupy a very interesting position of power within their communities. They were they were seen as 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 figures of authority. I mean they 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 had these special powers. They they knew how to heal. Uh, they they had this this knowledge of the use of herbs and magic and they knew kind of like the beyond. Uh, so in that sense they were respected. I mean and they were uh, central figures of authority but at the same time or or because of that they were also perceived as transgressors. And so you see he gender playing a very important role because these women were did not did not fit into traditional gender roles. No, I mean they were defined notions of domesticity, uh, of being a good woman, of motherhood, of passivity, or or, or victimhood, and instead they were seen as these wicked creatures. No, I mean so in the moment in which they failed to 
do the magic they 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 had promised, or in the moment that they affected someone uh, that was influential within the community, they paid with their lives. No, I mean, and these lynchings against witches were very cruel, as other lynchings, but this was these were in particular justified uh, through these mythical beliefs. This has been a fascinating conversation, but before we let you go, could you reflect for us a little bit on some of the ways that your book might help us analyze contemporary news, maybe some of the things that have happened even since you you know, put the book to bed and sent it off to press um, about extrajudicial violence in Mexico today? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think the... <sighs> You can see many of the, you see a lot of continuities. And I would say that the, you know, the interesting and at at the same time concerning part of the book is that, you know, as I mentioned before, I began this project with a concern with the history of the present in Latin America. I mean, why or how come in so many of these countries, lynchings continue to happen, even if these countries are considered fully functional democracies, fully integrated into the global economy. And unfortunately, like uh, many of the things that we see today are a continuation of these same drivers of uh, of violence that I analyze in the book. No, I mean, and I will mention two. One is the is the pervasiveness and the deep rooted uh, impunity that exists in Mexico and that exists in other countries that that serves as a way to legitimate extrajudicial violence. No, I mean the. This continues, I mean, even, you know, even with different promises by different governments, no, even in, in contemporary Mexico with uh, with uh, President López Obrador having promised that he was going to end corruption. No? I mean, what we have seen in the news in the last few weeks are scandals after scandals that, uh, you know, like, involve a former president, no, I mean, but that also involved, like, let's say, the brother of López Obrador. Uh, and this is al- across different ideologies or, like, different political parties, no, political parties from the left, from the right, from the center. I mean, they have all been accused of corruption and, and also uh, been incapable of providing justice, no, I mean, so the, the, the continuity or the tenacity of, 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 Levels of impunity uh, is is a huge driver uh, of lynching and other forms of extrajudicial violence that continues to be present in Latin America, in Mexico, and in Latin America at large today, uh, and that I see as 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 unfortunately something that connects very clearly with the book, even though the book deals with something that happened in the first half of the 20th century. The second thing that I continue to see is this. Um, as I said before, it's not only about impunity, but it's also, it's, it's kind of like it's, it's citizens demand for these swift forms of punishment, no? these swift, uh, lethal, cruel forms of punishment. And it does have to do with impunity. I mean, it has to do with, the, with people that are tired of seeing that the authorities don't do anything or don't do enough to resolve crimes. But it has also to do with something that has entered, I would say, uh, people's perceptions and even like uh, what you could call like a certain culture of punishment. I mean, where people want these so-called criminals to be punished in a very uh, in a very physical and, and, and immediate way. Um, so when you see, for instance, the violence today or like some of people's reactions to, you know, like doctors, nurses uh, in Mexico that are accused of transmitting uh, COVID or of being a uh, 
people that are, you know, like not doing enough. No, I mean, you see some of these, this, the prevalence of this kind of, uh, you know, like thirst of uh, of othering, no, I mean, of, of, of going against people that are perceived as transgressors or as, as, as doing something wrong. Uh, and, and you see people using lynching as a, as a form of justice or threatening people with, with lynching or with this kind of collective killings. So I see both of these things. On the one hand, on the, one hand the state's failure to provide justice. On the other hand, citizens' proclivity to resort to this form of violence in the face of uh, injustice or in the face of uh, people that they perceive as transgressors or as offensive. No? And, and these are two things that I believe are very concerning and that you know, tell me that the book will speak to the present, unfortunately, for some time. So I've been speaking today with Gemma Klopp Santa Maria about her book, In the Vortex of Violence, Lynching, Extralegal Justice, and the State in Post-Revolutionary Mexico. Gemma, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Rachel. It was a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about my book. <laughs>